You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and guests in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, play optimal poker with Andrew Brokus. So this week, Jordan's with me and we get to have one of my poker heroes on. He's really became a hero of mine when I read his first book on GTO because he changed my perspective on GTO. That he, he's the right author of Play Optimal Poker, Andrew Brokus, and it changed my perspective on GTO because before I read that book, I was very much one of those that believed in this battle that went on between GTO or exploitative play. And I really, I, I've really come to believe that it's one of the silliest debates. Um, it's not GTO or exploitative, in my opinion. I'm really excited to find out if he feels the same way. In my mind, exploitative play is a subset of GTO study. I'm really excited to have him on. Andrew, I'm really happy. Thank to you. Have and you. let me say, it's, it's certainly lovely to be called a hero, but the finer compliment I would say is that I, I changed your mind on something. That thing in particular, that was one of the main goals in, in writing the book was to convince people of exactly that. It's great to hear that it had that effect on you. You've got three new books out since then. Yes. Is that correct? Uh, there's a sequel to Play Optimal Poker, and then there's the Essential Poker Concepts books, which are their collections of essays that were actually the essays were written prior to the Play Optimal Poker books. I just had not collected them into these anthologies. And it's actually it was interesting in putting those together, especially for the second of the two books, to see myself even as early as maybe like 2011, 2012, already working out in my own writing, which I had kind of forgotten about some of the concepts that ultimately ended up going into Play Optimal Poker, which was published in 2019. So you know, interesting to look back at my older writing and see that I was already starting to grapple with those concepts and then work on things that ended up making their way into that book. Yeah. No, that's, that's curious to me. Did you have those essays written as just a hobby that you did? Or was there intent to publish them somewhere, whether it be on forums or in a magazine or a website or something? They were on the 2 Plus 2 magazine, which was an online magazine that the 2 Plus 2, I don't think they did a great job of, of promoting it. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of the 2 Plus 2 forums, but they, they had like an online magazine that they published, which I've been writing for 2008. And I contributed something literally every month from when I started doing it for like over 10 years. I stopped publishing that 2 Plus 2 was, was purchased and they stopped publishing the magazine last year. They, I, I published, I don't know, like, Close, probably close to 200 articles with them. So the way that works is they have the rights to them just for six months, and then the, the rights revert back to you. So I'd owned the rights to these articles that I had written for quite some time, and I just hadn't really done anything with that. And what I decided to do with the Essential Poker Concepts books was to go back through to look over those. I mean, obviously not everything I wrote back then was like still applicable or still the way I would want to explain something now. So I tried to pick out the ones that I thought were still relevant and when necessary, update them a little bit, and then publish them in these books. I'm very curious, when you went back and you looked over that, is there anything that you came across that you, you know, at the time you wholeheartedly believe, but now you look at and think it just, it's just not true? There were certainly some things that I misunderstood about game theory, which was part of my motivation for, for writing the Play Optimal Poker book was from having read Mathematics of Poker, the Bill Chen and, and Jared Ankeman book, which, as far as I know, was really the first thing to like very rigorous. I mean, other authors had, had addressed game theory, but they did it in a much more rigorous way than other people had. But there were some things I came away with, which was, um, it's not that they explained them badly or that, that they were wrong. It was my own misunderstanding of how to apply those concepts. But you know, in, in trying to make sense of what I read in that book, when I looked at some of the things that I wrote, probably in like the late 2000s, prior to, to 2010 or so, when I was still pretty unsophisticated in my understanding of, of game theory, there were, I think, understandable misunderstandings <laughs> that I had. But part of what I, what I wanted to do, and, and when you look in Optimal Poker, you'll see that there are some like clarifications where I try to say pretty explicitly, like I try to preempt those misunderstandings that I had when I first encountered some of these concepts. Yeah, I think that when, when you look at the difference there, the mathematics of poker is, for me, it was a difficult book to read. Yeah. Play Optimal Poker was not difficult to read. And I think that it's a great way to introduce people to GTO. 
I um I met Bill Chen in 2008, and I told him at that time I was like, I think you should write practical guide to how to use the concepts for mathematical poker in real game situations. And I felt like I gave him 10 years to do that from the time I made that <laughs> suggestion, and he hadn't acted on it. So finally, I wrote that book. Yeah, well, it works. I think actually it, you can actually go backwards if you want. You can read Play Optimal Poker, and then you can go read The Mathematics of Poker, and you'll probably understand it a lot better than if you go the opposite direction. I think so. I mean, and they get deeper into certain concepts than I do. You know, I, I sort of only address some of the simpler toy games from that book. They do much more complicated stuff, much more complicated mathematics than I'm capable of. Uh, so, yeah, I think you could look at my book as in some ways an, an introduction or a companion to that book, not that you would have to read that one to make sense of, of pop. So that's actually really refreshing for me to hear. And I have even more respect now because when you read Play Optimal Poker, I read it a hearing an expert explaining to me these you know very difficult concepts at a, a level that I can understand. And it's interesting to hear that it was uh, the work of you going through these concepts and, and trying to better understand them yourself. So it's, I mean, I have respect for you putting in the work, which is one of the the most difficult things to do is put the work in yourself, not have someone just give you the answers. Yeah, I, I got there the hard way. And I tried with Play Optimal Poker, I try to like walk you through it as opposed to just telling you, I mean, the answers are in there, but I try to set it up in a way that makes you the reader, an active participant where I'm, I'm asking you questions. I'm encouraging you to try to answer those questions for yourself. And I try to set it up in a way where First, I'm asking you before I've given you really the tools to answer the questions so you can try to answer it with the tools that you currently have. And in some cases, I'm setting little traps for you where I have a, a sense of where you might go wrong and I want you to experience going wrong so that then you can, uh, or just experience the difficulty. I would be like, oh, I don't actually know how to approach that situation. So that then when I do present you with the tools for here's how I would recommend thinking about that, or here's how game theory can be a useful tool to help you think through that situation, then you can practice again at the end of the chapter. Now that you do have those tools, you can see how those are helpful in addressing the thing that you maybe struggled with at the start of the chapter. I unfortunately have to confess that I have not read much of Play Optimal Poker 2 yet. I've just started reading it. But there seems to be a distinct difference between the two books. The first one really feels like an introduction. The second one really feels like this is how to apply this knowledge. I think there's something to that. I did the, the first book was a little bit more just introducing basic game theory concepts, like the the idea of indifference. What does that even mean? Uh, I think that can be a tricky thing to wrap your head around. And then there's a separate question of how do you apply that in a poker context? So there are examples in, in Play Optimal Poker. There are examples that are drawn from real no limit situations. But Play Optimal Poker also deals a lot with toy games, which are like very simplified games that only barely resemble poker. The simplest example of this what's called the ace king queen game or the clairvoyance game where it's just like each person is dealt a single card either an ace a king or a queen and your hand never changes so if you have an ace you always have the nuts if you have a queen you always have the worst possible hand and then you can just think about betting and, and calling and raising strategies in, in this very simplistic game and i find that a very useful teaching tool i think a lot of people find that a useful teaching tool some people do not um they're, they're to borrow a term, um, they're kind of polarizing the toy games. Some people, I think, just don't, they have trouble accessing in such a theoretical way. So I took that feedback and I tried to use more examples that more closely resemble real no limit situations in Play Optimal Poker 2. I will say that technically, anytime you're doing something with a solver, you're working with a toy game. It's a much more complex toy game than the Ace King Queen game that I just talked about. But a solver is not solving an actual no limit game. When you do anything with a solver, which Play Optimal Poker 2 is not, it's not requiring you to do solver work, but I'm showing you how the, the output from a solver is supporting the, the concepts that I'm presenting there. When you do anything with a solver, a solver can't just consider every possible bet size the way you have to. And to actually play no limit, of course, you're allowed to bet any amount that you want. You can bet one big blind, you can bet 100 big blinds, you can bet anywhere in between, and you can do that at every single decision point. And that's way too much, even for like the world's most advanced computer, that's way too much for it to try to process all of that. So what you do with the solver is you have to tell it a couple of bet sizes. You tell it like, okay, in this game, you're allowed to bet one third of the pot, or you're allowed to bet two thirds of the pot, or you're allowed to bet 100% of the pot. And if you know what you're doing, you can give it bet sizes where constraining it in that way is not that big of a deal. Realistically, it doesn't matter that you can bet 33% of the pot, but not 40% of the pot. 
probably not very much. Like there's not a lot of situations where it's like you're really hamstringing yourself that you're not allowed to bet 40, that you can bet 33%. So you know, if, if you do it well, you can kind of, you can create a toy game that is extremely similar to an actual no limit situation. And it gives you a good idea of how to approach the actual no limit situation, but it's not truly solving the game of no limit hold'em. It's solving a toy game where bet size is restricted. So all the examples from Playoff Mobile Poker 2 are also technically toy games. They're just toy games that much more closely resemble no limit hold'em than something like the Clairvoyance game does. Yeah, I, I remember back in the day, uh, quote unquote, back in the day, you'd be at the table and you'd get to showdown and the player who wants to prove that he's right would, would say, pull out the equity calculator and let's see who was ahead. Now you sit down at a game and you're, you're playing and people will be like, put that in the solver and see who's right. And it's like both are, it's still wrong. <laughs> right. Yes. The solvers don't, it's not the same as looking in the back of the textbook to get the right answer. The, the best advice that I ever got about how to use a solver was from the creator. I don't think this tool is even still around, but there was a tool called GTO Range Builder, which is one of the first consumer-facing like solver products. And we had him as a guest on the Thinking Poker podcast. And what he said was, you want to think about a solver the way a scientist uses a microscope. Right? What you're, you're using it to conduct experiments. So if you wanted to say something like, maybe you want to investigate something like continuation betting frequency. You can run a solve on a bunch of different flops, and you can look at how does my continuation betting frequency change depending on the board texture. Am I, do I have a higher betting frequency when the board is paired? Do I have a higher betting frequency when the board is monotone, when there's an ace on the board, when there are three low cards on the board, when as straight as possible? Those are all like variables, and you can, you can test that. You can gather data from running these experiments, and you can compare them. You can do the same thing with bet size. You know, if you're going to bet, should you use a small bet or a large bet? And again, you know, on a monotone board, on a paired board, a three-bet pot, when you have a shallow effective stack. And you know, the goal is not to look up some hand that you already played and just say, like, how should I have played this situation that's over and done with? I mean, it, it can be nice to get closure on something. But really what you're trying to do is you're trying to, and this is what the, the playoff poker books do as well, you're trying to extract heuristics things that will help you make better decisions, not just in this situation or in a very similar situation in the future. You're trying to teach yourself something about the game of poker. You're trying to understand what hands are good for raising and why. How do I decide on a bet size in any situation? How do I choose? Should I use a small bet size or a big bet size? What does big mean? Um, it, it's, it's really, it's big questions like that, that, that you want to use solvers as a tool to help you better understand the, the underlying strategy of poker, not just to investigate the one specific situation that you're trying to simulate in the solver. That's, um, wow, that, that's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, they're extremely powerful tools. It, the funny thing for me, though, I was having a little bit of a conversation earlier um, through text with Jordan this week, and I put one of the things a quote from one your uh, play optimal poker two in that and i came down to this like we are having this discussion and i came down to this part of it we we've got all this time of trying to solve the game we have all this time of using solvers and it seems to me that we've managed to come a long ways from when the answer was always depends we've come a long ways from that and we've reached a point where we can now say confidently when somebody asks what to do in a situation, that the answer is depends. <laughs> yeah, um, that I, I do think there's some truth to that. Like one thing that can be frustrating about working with solvers is so many things are mixes. So especially if you're talking about an early street, like you're looking at a continuation betting decision, it's not at all uncommon to see that like every single hand in your range might be uh, a mix of bets and checks, and that can be a frustrating thing to look at and say like, well, wait, so it just it depends. But being able to answer like depends on what is extremely important. So when you do find yourself, if, if you know, whether you're the one looking at a solver solution or you're looking at you know, you know, from a training video or a book or something where someone else is sharing a solver solution with you and you see something where the solver says, for instance, well, you're indifferent between betting and checking. Betting and checking have the same expected value. Uh, at equilibrium. In other words, if we don't make any assumptions about what the opponent is going to do, which is how solvers operate, solvers kind of assume your opponent plays as well as possible, and they assume that you at future decision points will also play as well as possible. So under that, that set of assumptions, literally doesn't matter what you do. You have the same expected value whether you bet or check. But that doesn't really tell you 
how to play. And even if you were to look at it and say, oh, I'm supposed to bet 72% of the time and check 28% of the time, that still doesn't really tell you what to do. Like that, the, the right answer when you're playing in game, even if you could somehow produce those numbers in real time while you're playing, the right answer against the actual human that you're playing against would not be to just randomize and, and you choose one of those things with 72 or 28% frequency. The key is to understand what does it depend on? There are certain things that your opponent is supposed to do in response to your bet or in response to your check. And if they do all of those things exactly right, then you make no more money betting than you do checking. But they're not going to do all those things exactly right. So when you see that it's a mix where it depends, your question as, as a human is trying to get better at poker should be, what does it depend on? And what kinds of assumptions about my opponent or, or what sorts of deviations, mistakes, uh, tendencies on the part of my opponent would lead me to prefer one of those options over the other. In the case of continuation betting, often the, the frequency with which you get check raised is one of the biggest drivers. So when you see a solver say, oh, you shouldn't see bet here 100% of the time. In fact, you should only bet 80% of the time. The main thing that would disincentivize you from betting is the risk of getting check raised. If you have a hand that really doesn't want to get check raised, then the solver might think, well, if you bet this 100% of the time, then you're pretty vulnerable to getting check raised. If you think that your average opponent doesn't check raise enough or this specific opponent is not going to check raise enough, and you can use the solver to look at what enough means. You can look at what is the opponent's response to this continuation that's supposed to be, and you can look at that and see, do I think my opponents are actually doing this? Do I think that they're finding these check raises, some of which might be quite counterintuitive? And if you understand that um, if you could take away that risk of a check raise or reduce that risk of a check raise, which is also a thing you can do with solvers. It's not really something I get into a lot in the book, but you can do a thing called node locking where you can set a specific strategy for the opponent and then the solver will give you a new solution that is optimized against that locked-in strategy. So you could say, what if my opponent didn't check raise this aggressively? And then what you'll often find is that all of those mixes, they turn into pure bets. If you can assume that you're not gonna get check raised very often, then it doesn't depend anymore. Now there is a right answer once you make that assumption. And the right answer is that you you should just bet all of those hands. I think that that term counterintuitive brings up a good point that we see often with like the, the low stakes player pool, at least uh, players that I have talked to in the past as, as far as like helping from a strategic point of view. The scenario will usually be they have a very strong hand, they flop a very strong hand, and the fear is not getting action. So they want to check as opposed to betting. And so I, I know it's in, it's in one of your uh, Essentials essays, you discuss the topic of, it's very rarely a mistake to go from, like you said, two different sizes, betting large or betting small or whatever. But if you're checking a hand, that should absolutely be betting. And I think the counterintuitive point there being, they want to check so that their opponent can bluff on the turn and they get some action there. Or they slow play, you know, so they disguise their hand. But if your opponent is an aggressive bluffy opponent, then maybe they're just going to check raise at some frequency and you have a very strong hand that now just destroys that bluffy check raise range. And it's, a, it's like a very counterintuitive reaction to what they intend to like want to do with the super strong hand they have. Yeah. And I think that gets actually to one of the other essays in the book, which is about like, what are your real goals when you're playing? And most people, because this is the thing that I do as a coach, I always ask people when I'm working with a new student, what are your goals? What are you trying to get out of poker? And the easy answer that most people will give is just like, oh, I just, I want to make money. I mean, we all like to make money playing poker. I don't think there are very many people for whom poker is the very best way that they can turn time into money. If that's the only thing that you care about, like there's probably something else you could do that, that would cause you to make more money. So there's something else that you're looking to get out of poker. And the more honest you are about that, or the more honest you are about your other goals, you can think about either how to accommodate those things or whether those things are actually interfering with the goal of making money. So in the example that you mentioned, and I think you're right, this is a very common thing that we see with recreational or, or, or less sophisticated players, there's a panic of like, oh, when I have a huge hand, it's really important to me to get action. And there might be a trade-off between, like, th that is the risk that you take. If, if you bet with a strong hand, there is a risk that your opponent folds a hand that might have put money in the pot later. Maybe they would have put money in the pot as a bluff. Maybe their hand that is folding now would have improved on a later street, and you are, you are missing out on something as a result of betting. The question is, are you getting compensated for that risk? And usually when you have a strong hand, you shouldn't be thinking about the worst hands in your opponent's range. Like when you flop quads, you shouldn't be thinking, how can I string my opponent along for a few extra pennies if he has nothing? That's not your main goal. When you flop a huge hand, you should be thinking about the stronger hands that your opponent might have. And you should be saying to yourself, 
if I happened to catch my opponent in the ideal situation, maybe the flop is 8-8 king and your opponent has king 10 and you have pocket eights, that's what you want to think about is how do I, how do I make sure I get the most from king 10? And if you don't bet with your pocket eights, what you're really doing is you're giving your opponent the chance to do the thing that they want, which is probably to get to showdown cheaply. If your opponent has a good but not great hand like king 10, their goal is not going to be shovel money into the pot. They're going to worry not just about you having quads. They have to worry about you having pocket aces, ace king, king queen, king jack, any eight is giving you trips. There's a lot for them to worry about. So they're not going to bet if you don't force them to put some money in the pot. And the way you force them to put money in the pot is to make the bet yourself. And you mentioned, you know, you also, and I know you're, this isn't you talking, this is you channeling that, that hypothetical person, but you mentioned, you know, the checking to conceal your hand. And I would argue that betting conceals your hand perfectly well. You don't usually have quads. So, <laughs> you know, you, there's plenty of other hands that you would bet on that flop besides quads, including probably like if you're the pre-flop raiser, there's plenty of hands that you would bet on that flop as a bluff. So betting is, it's not like just by betting on a king 8-8 flop, you're screaming at your opponent, I have quads. You know, there, there's lots of hands that you would bet on. Arguably, a check is more suspicious than a bet. Betting it probably is how you would want to play most of your weekends. Uh, and that is one of the central teachings of Play Optimal Poker is that, you know, the way that you get action when you have a strong hand or what incentivizes your opponent to pay you off with anything other than a huge hand of their own is the risk that you might be bluffing. And often that's the better way to get paid off is you bet and your opponents are worried, legitimately worried that you might be bluffing. And so they're reluctant to fold when they have good but not great hands. Uh, never mind that like a lot of the people in that small stakes game you're describing are just reluctant to fold, period. Most people's complaint in those games is like nobody ever folds. So it is weird then that those same people when they have a huge hand, now what they're worried about is that everyone is going to fold. You know, I think uh, there's just, there's a lot of fear-based thinking on, on both sides. I have something that I want to address. You actually have already answered this, but I, I'm hoping for a more simplistic answer for middle-aged, slow people like myself. So I, I always have this problem wrapping my head around the concept that GTO is a static strategy, because in my mind, that as soon as you've already mentioned that, as soon as somebody steps out of a normal frequency, we're supposed to take action against what they've just done. I want somebody to finally get it through my head. What exactly is GTO as far as a static strategy or dynamic strategy? Because I'm still confused about it. Yeah, I think that's a very legitimate question. It's a thing that a lot of people who are not middle-aged and slow um, are also confused about. I would say that GTO is not a strategy at all. Um, I would say that game theory is, is a tool that it will help you find a strategy that you can use over the table. I mean, to some extent, this is just kind of a terminological thing or a question of like, what do we mean when we're using some of these words? Um, I know that when people say like play GTO, what they have in mind is try to play like a solver, right? Like, should I try to play like a solver or should I try to take advantage of things that I see my opponents doing? And by play like a solver, they mean kind of try to approximate the equilibrium, try to play in a way that avoids making any assumptions about what your opponents are doing and, and kind of makes the best play in the absence of, of those kinds of assumptions. So I think when we use that phrase, play GTO, what that really means is if you were to plug this into a solver, what would the solver do? And as you said, like we could use node blocking and, and tell the solver to make certain assumptions about the opponents and it would give us a different output. So I would say that like what we call a GTO strategy is only optimal in a world where you're not making any assumption about what your opponents are going to do. That's, you know, that O in, in GTO that stands for optimal. It is optimal if you are not comfortable making an assumption about what your opponent is going to do. And I think you usually should be comfortable making that assumption, especially if you're playing with relatively weak opponents. You don't have to be 100% sure. It's just a question of, is your guess going to be right more often than it's wrong in terms of what, how, you know, is your opponent going to call too much or, or not enough or something like that? So I think that game theory is most useful in situations where you aren't comfortable making that kind of assumption, where you say, boy, I, I truly have no idea what my opponent is doing in this spot. Like he just check raised me and it's a really weird check raise. I don't know what to make of it. I'm, I'm just lost. And that happens a lot. Even, you know, no matter how good you are, you find yourself in those situations sometimes where you're like, boy, I just, I have no idea what's going on here. I have no idea what to do. And this is one of the times where game theory is most helpful, where it can just help you figure out a solution like that on the fly. I'm saying, okay, I'm facing a check raise. I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a position to guess what my opponent might have or what his check raising strategy might be. 
so I can revert to my understanding of game theory and use that as a tool to help me navigate this situation. I'm going to think about what is my opponent risking with this check raise? I want to make sure it's not profitable for him to do this with any two cards first. So I'm going to think about my own range. What, what do I think my range looks like when I bet? Not just what are my current cards, but I'm going to try to get a picture of what are all the hands that I might bet in this situation. And I'm going to think about his raise. And I'm going to say, well, I have to be careful not to fold so much that it would be profitable for him to make this raise with any two cards. And so then I have to think about my own range and where my current hand sits relative to my range. If I want to be continuing with roughly two thirds of my range, I'm not going to be sitting here counting exact combinations at the table, but I'm going to have that intuitive sense of, I know I want to be calling more than I fold, for instance, then I need to make sure that I, you know, if I have a hand that is in the top 50% of my range or the top 60, 70% of my range, that I, I don't want to fold that hand. So I need to be able to think about what other hands could I have. And if I can name some other ones that I would fold, then I'm going to feel better about calling this hand. And if I can't think of anything weaker than my current hand, then I might feel better about folding it. So that's the kind of situation where I think it's most useful to just try to ask yourself, like, what would a solver do in this spot? And as soon as you do feel comfortable making assumptions about your opponent's play, then you shouldn't be trying to approximate a solver solution because a solver solution is specifically for a case where you're not making any assumptions. So instead, you can think about heuristics that you might have learned from working with a solver or from reading my books or wherever else. And game theory is still helping you here. It's helping you understand how do you take advantage of an opponent who is not playing exactly as a solver would? How do you take an advantage of an opponent who's making certain mistakes? What, what can you do to maximize your profit against those mistakes? That's actually my favorite title of your essays actually the making an ass out of you and me because <laughs> uh, i've done it plenty of times i've ran the triple barrel bluff into the nuts just assuming that like this player can have a middle hand here but i i think that touches on such a great topic because i think uh, range construction is so important as far as getting the foundational level of the of the basics correct when you sit down at a table we've spoken before about being creative and how do I go from taking a pen and paper or printed out range chart to actually being able to make adjustments at the table to eventually getting to what I would call like dynamic range construction where you're literally creating a new range every almost every hand that you're playing. I think it requires you have assumptions there. You have to be able to make an assumption about what a player's opening, what he's willing to fold, and you have to be okay with being wrong. Well, otherwise you're just stuck playing on autopilot and then you're going to end up like exploiting yourself on accident because you're not making the adjustments to a person that in, in a game of incomplete information, you just have to start making guesses in. Yeah. The being okay with being wrong. That's a really good way of putting that. I like to emphasize that poker is a gambling game and you're gambling on a lot of things. I mean, obviously you get it in with Kings versus Ace King, you're gambling because sometimes that Ace comes on the flop. But you're also gambling in the way that you're talking about, where like you're gambling that your assumption is correct about your opponent. And you're not 100% sure that your assumption is correct. There's some chance that you try to do something exploitative and you think, oh, this guy's a huge net. He's just going to fold everything. So I'm just going to triple barrel him. And then it turns out he's actually a huge fish and he calls you all the way down and, and you get stacked. And you know maybe that was a bad read on your part. Maybe with the information you had, you were actually right to reach that conclusion. Maybe everything about this person's appearance and demeanor and hands that you'd previously seen them play, all of that led you to the conclusion, the very reasonable conclusion with the limited information you had, that this person was going to be very nitty. And you were right to attempt what you attempted with the information you had. And only after they called you down, could you conclude, oh, I was, my, my assumption about this person was wrong. But you, know, you made an assumption that was reasonable with the information you had, and you wagered that assumption was going to be right more often than it was wrong. And if you encountered 100 people like this person, maybe you would, in fact, be right more often than wrong. So in a sense, like you got bad beat, just like if the A's had come on the flop and you had pocket kings, you got bad beat because you happened to run into the person who you know looks like a nip but is not. This has been some awesome free coaching, which, by the way, is the whole reason I started this podcast, so I could sucker people into giving me free coaching. This is great. Um, <laughs> I, I say the same thing. We, we started the Thinking Poker podcast so we could talk to Tommy Angela. Yeah, I, I will tell you that that that's one of my goals. He's one of my uh, he's one of my uh, top of list guys. I've got to get on this show. I want to go back to 
earlier you had talked about you need a reason besides money to play poker. I do. I, I have a few reasons. For some of us, it allows us to compete with people we could never compete in any other sport. I cannot compete with Jordan in cross-country running, but I can compete with him on the poker table. But I think for me that it goes more than that. I've said a lot on this podcast that if I get better at poker, I get better at life. And if I get better at life, I get better at poker. And that's that connection there is the biggest reason why I play poker and love the game. So one of the things that stood out to me, and this I'm going to carry around with me, this comes from Play Optimal Poker 2. Game theory teaches us to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. You shared that in your preface, which I have to say was, to me, felt like somebody in the middle of an existential crisis trying to address the existential crisis that our society is going through right now. And I wonder if you feel the same about what you wrote there. Yeah, I, I was going to clarify that I would say it was more society that was in the existential crisis, but then that's how you put it the second time, which I think is more accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. What you're referring to specifically was, was around COVID, um, which I, I started writing Play Optimal Poker 2 before COVID had, had hit. And by the time I published it, we were kind of right at what many people would consider the worst of it or when, when most people were most concerned about it. And that's a case of... Like we talk about in, in, in game theory, game theory is relevant in any circumstance where the outcome of your decision depends in part on decisions that other people make. So in poker, that's pretty clear to see, right? Like if you bluff, whether or not bluffing is going to show a profit for you, it's not all about your own decision. Where, like if you're playing solitaire, it's a different card game. If you're playing solitaire, there's a right play and the right play does not depend on anything that anyone else does. It only depends on, on your own choices and, and whatever luck of what card turns over next on the deck. But no one else's decision is, is involved if you're playing a game of solitaire. When you're playing a game of poker, I can't answer the question of like, is this bluff going to be profitable? Yes or no, because that depends in part on an action that your opponent takes. And I think this is true of you know, almost everything in life. Like we're all interdependent on other people and we live among other people and other decisions, other people's decisions affect us and vice versa. But I think that COVID emphasizes that or emphasize that to, to a new degree of how much other people's decisions were affecting us, both like in the obvious ways of if, if someone else chooses to go out when they are aware or that they either have or may have it, then they can infect you even if you're doing everything that was within your power or almost everything that was within your power to um, to keep yourself safe. And likewise, even if even if you're not directly exposed to them, if people making those choices end up you know, overwhelming the hospital system, for instance, and then you're not able to seek care for something completely unrelated to COVID, you know, maybe you just have a heart attack or something and you need to go to the hospital and the hospital is, is very crowded and all the healthcare workers are overworked because of decisions that other people made around COVID and you know, maybe decisions that uh, the government made in terms of what they are or are not going to fund. I mean, there's a lot that goes into this, but yeah, I, I think that you know, COVID brought to light the extent to which our outcomes are reliant on other people's decisions in a particularly stark way. So if I could approach it from a, a more philosophical sense, just to kind of connect the game theory topic to the context in which we're talking about, do you feel that learning to make better decisions might help uh, society make better decisions on the whole? Or if we say, if everyone became like a game theory expert and they start applying it to your own lives, do you think that it would have a, a beneficial outcome or just kind of normal? Because we, we already see that people acting in their own interests. But when I specifically think about the context of COVID, it's like, do I go out and try and make money? Or like, do I go out to get food for myself? Or do I stay in because there's risk of this thing getting worse, regardless of what your political beliefs are on it? Yeah, I think it's probably more optimistic than empirically demonstrable that like making better or like sort of like studying poker will, will help people make better decisions. And like, like, I'd like to believe that's true. I feel like it's helped me improve my decisions. I could certainly point to people who are extremely successful poker players who I think are making wild decisions <laughs> with regard to things related to COVID. So it's certainly not a one-to-one -one correlation. I mean, these are truly, truly top-notch poker players. So it, it's not a guarantee of anything. I think that 
one of the things, like, you know, we often, in the context of poker, we're almost always thinking about game theory in the context of a zero-sum game, where it's like, if, if you and I are playing a pot against one another, for me to make money, you have to be losing money. So I'm thinking of it as, how do I take money out of your pocket? In a lot of real-world game theory situations, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find uh, solutions that are good for both of us. And the best solution for me may well also be the best solution for you. The simple example that I use in the book is like, if you and I are on a road and we're driving towards one another, the best solution for both of us is that we not crash our cars <laughs> into one another. Um, so you know that that's a, an easy case where we're trying to convey information accurately to one another. I'm trying to convey to you, I'm going to stay on my right and you stay on your right, and then we'll be fine. And we can navigate that game in a way that enables both of us to get the highest possible payout. And it's a problem if you encounter a driver who is bad at that game. Like <laughs> their, their being bad at that game is bad for them and for you. And I think that's so like, there's, there's two different cases with COVID. I mean, one is, are there people doing selfish things where it's sort of like, it's, it's good for them, but they're imposing a cost on everyone else in society. And I think we certainly have seen examples of that. That's a harder problem to fix. I think ideally we try to create incentives so that you know it will be in people's benefit. Maybe that means making sure that people have sufficient sick leave from work so that they're not incentivized to go to work when they're sick, something like that. But I think there's also cases where it's just like, it would be in everyone's benefit, including the benefit of the individual making the decision if they made a certain choice and they're making a different choice anyway. And you know, those are the cases where I would like to think that you know, something like studying poker or just thinking more closely about how you make decisions in general, which poker is an example of that. Poker is a thing that forces you to make many decisions and think about how you make decisions. Those are the cases where I'm more optimistic about our ability to you know, maybe just like help people improve their decision-making process in a way that where they recognize there's not even a trade-off between their interest and the interest of society at large. I'm upset with a couple things in your answer there, Andrew. The, the first one being, I'm, I'm upset you would bring up my bad driving to make an example. <laughs> and also, I, I have this pet peeve and, and I'm, I'm going to use it to segue into something. I, poker is really not a zero-sum game. It's a negative-sum game. And I say that because if everybody plays the same, everybody loses money because of rake. I understand that there's times when that's not true, like when there isn't rake. But the only reason I bring it up is because it's hard to find win-win situations in poker. And it's easy to find lose-lose situations. It's hard to find win-win situations in poker. I think that for myself, I always find that the most intelligent people are always looking for win-win situations. I believe Jordan is one of those people that looks for win-win situations. When I listen to you, and when I read the things you've written, I believe that you're a person that likes to find win-win situations. And being as that's so hard to do in poker, I'd like to ask how you've been able to do that in your life outside of poker. You're right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good read of uh, my psychology. I've done a lot of work, like, like kind of nonprofit or volunteer work outside of Poker obviously has nothing to do with poker, but poker financed my ability to do that. But within the context of poker, like that was part of starting the podcast was to enable me to be in a cooperative relationship with other people, both with my friends, first uh, Nate Davis, who was co-hosting the podcast with me, and now Carlos Welch, who I met through the podcast and now has become a co-host of the podcast, who was initially a guest on the podcast, and we became friends and, and now collaborators. So you know, there's being in, in that cooperative some relationship, but also with the guests on the podcast, just like right now, you and I are cooperating to put this thing out and, and we both want it to be good. Neither of us is trying to sabotage it or make the other person look bad or make the show bad. And coaching has been a big one as well. Writing these articles, writing these books, these are all things, I mean, in some sense, like writing the book is probably costing someone money because their opponent made a play that, you know, that was good and took money out of their pocket. But like on balance, I'm in a cooperative relationship with my readers. I'm making money from them having bought the book and they're also hopefully making money from their having bought the book. So that's a uh, positive sum relationship for us. I would also say that in the context of poker, it's maybe not quite as negative. I mean, it's negative some with regard to money, certainly. But there are reasons why people who lose money at poker continue to play. And I don't think it's just that they're delusional. I don't think it's just that they think, oh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm actually a great poker player and I'm only losing because I just so consistently get unlucky, even if they say that at the table sometimes. I think, you know, there are other things that they enjoy about poker besides just making money. It is possible 
for me to make the money that I would like to make from poker and also for other people to get the experience that they want to get, which might be challenging themselves or just getting the sort of social connection of participating in the game or any number of things. I mean, that's one of my goals as a professional player, at least when I'm playing live poker, is I want to understand if it's kind of like customer relations. Like if there is a person who is obviously not a winning player, at least not at these stakes, the stakes that we're playing, he's not a favorite in the game we're currently playing and I expect to make money from him. I want to understand what is this person getting out of this experience? What do they want? And if it's something that I'm comfortable providing, like sometimes what they want is someone to like do cocaine with them and that's not going to be me. But um, if it's something, you know, they just want somebody to laugh at their jokes or whatever, you know, to, to some extent, I'm willing to provide that service. And I want to make sure like, I'm not going to be rude to them at the table, for instance. I want them to have a positive experience and, and get the thing that they're hoping to get out of the game. Yeah, being a jerk at the table is negative EV. I think so. That's become a topic of, of discussion with myself and my friends every now and then. I've known to be fairly competitive at the table, but I'm more competitive with the people that want to compete. And I, I have this, the opinion that if you are a professional player, like part of your responsibility at the table is to make it the environment. Like we, we've, you know, we'll talk about the meta and we'll talk about being good for the game. And we've mentioned before in, a, in an earlier podcast, uh, we're going to try and change the meaning of being good for the game from being a fishy person where you say, oh, he's good for the game in a derogatory sense to he's good for the game to like, that's someone that you that you want to play with. That's a person that you want to sit down and like joke around with. There's somebody who's a good, a good ambassador of the game. And yeah, that, that's important to us here. And it, honestly, I, Andrew, I think you are a good ambassador of the game. If I could segue on that topic, because I thought this was was incredibly awesome when I was I was reading some of your profile information that Dell sent. Uh, I did not realize you had started the Boston Debate League. Yeah, that was actually supposed to be my job when I graduated college. So I was a competitive debater when I was in high school and in college. And that, you know, we talked about like debate improving your, your decision making capacity, but I felt like participating in competitive debate, both maybe improve my decision-making capacity, but more so just sort of open my eyes to a lot of things, help me understand the, the world and how to think better and, and just change my life for the better in, in a lot of ways. And that was something that I wanted to do, again, as a positive sum thing. So, I mean, it wasn't something I was getting paid for, for the most part. Sometimes it was paid work, but it was something I wanted to maintain my relationship with debate, and I wanted to share that with other people. And so I had worked when I was in college with the Urban Debate League in Chicago, which was like in the Chicago public high schools. There were uh, individual teams that I coached. And then later I was kind of running a lot of the programming for the league as a whole. That was when I was in college. And then when I graduated, I, I moved to Boston and there was not an Urban Debate League in Boston. Many major cities had them, but Boston did not. And I missed it. I wanted to, to work with it. And so I was like, well, what I'll do I will start an urban debate league in Boston and poker will be how I survive, <laughs> how I pay my bills while I'm trying to do that. And maybe, and I mean, this was a, a gamble and, and people literally left when, <laughs> when I told them this was the plan. I was like, maybe if this league is, is successful enough, it can reach the point where I could be like running, it could be my job. I could be the executive director of this league. It did eventually reach that point in 2009 or so, it was around the time that looked like a realistic thing. But that also happened to be the year, like by then I'd been playing poker for like four or five years and poker was going very, very well for me. Now, much better than I would have thought possible in like 2004 when I started doing it. So then I was like, well, maybe I don't actually want a full-time job. <laughs> so when the league finally reached the point where it was large enough for it to be a full-time job, we ended up hiring someone else, frankly, someone who in many ways was probably more qualified than I was to be running it anyway. He had been a teacher himself, which I think was a big help. And the league is still going strong. I don't have a lot to do with it anymore. I mean, I'm still very interested in what's going on and I volunteer when I can, but I don't have a lot of opportunities for that. Um, but yeah, the, the league is still in, in great shape. It's operating in all or almost all of the high schools in the Boston public school system, as well as in uh, like, Cambridge, I think they're in Somerville. I mean, some of the sort of um, other other districts in the bottom in the Boston area, uh, and also in a lot of middle schools now. So I looked up some stats, and I think the the one that I found most interesting was 
it's only an average of about $600 per student to teach them all of these skills that are, are super valid in the world, especially today, as opposed to all of the equipment required to fund something like a football program or a camp like that. Yeah, that was part of the goal. I mean, at least how I thought about the, the Urban Debate League system is like competitive debate in general was something like if you were to look at, this is probably more true 20 years ago than it is now, but if you were to look at like the national championships for high school or college, the schools that were winning those um, most consistently were like very expensive kind of elite private schools. Like Harvard has a top-notch debate I don't know, in Glenbrooks, I don't, I don't know like what, how many people know like the most prominent private high schools in, in the country, but uh, I said, that's a public school. But either way, I mean, it, it's sort of elite suburban schools that, that operate basically as private schools or, or elite private schools were the most competitive. And, and they had reached the point where they had almost like choked off debate other places. Like those schools were so competitive and were investing so much money in the program I mean, the kids going to, uh, you know, a seven-week summer camp that costs thousands of dollars, flying around the country every weekend, you know, I don't know, as a, as a high school student, like 15 or 20 weekends a year, you're like flying all over the country to compete different places. The budget of, of these teams was enormous. And so one of the things I wanted to do in, in creating the Boston Debate League was make something where a school with a small budget could compete. You know, we had six competitions. That you that were accessible by public transit, so you know you don't have to fly anywhere. We had our own summer program, so you didn't have to pay thousands of dollars to go to these other ones. And you know, I'm not claiming that we were creating teams that were competitive with them, although I think eventually that happened. You know, like the very best teams coming out of the urban debate leagues are competitive or, or even winning at the national championship level. Most of our students are not. Um, but what we were doing is creating a, a venue where it was possible for people to have the experience of debate. Uh, without ever leaving the city. And so, you know, we're able to do it at a much cheaper cost and in a kind of ring-fenced arena where they weren't just getting squashed by these, like, as you might imagine, largely white elite schools where, like, in addition to the, the socioeconomic disparity, like, the racial disparity was was making that situation more uh, complicated as well. So do you think that this whole process uh, provides skills that, I mean, could you just mention the, the racial disparity in the reality is, is that equality is equality is just a struggle in this country. And a lot of it is that skills are, whether intentionally or not, are withheld from a lot of minorities, whether it be uh, through, uh, I don't even know how to word it, um, but do you feel that doing this is a process for helping to promote skills that will bring greater equality in the future? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's, um, I mean, this comes back to that discussion of like positive sum versus versus zero sum. So in some ways there are like the, the most cynical view of this is that people, once they achieve a certain level of like success or power or something, they use the resources that they uh, have as a result of that to then shut out other people so that they can you know, maintain for themselves or, or for their children, they can, they can like continue to pass that down and not face competition from other people. So that's like the, the zero sum. Sometimes people are, have an incentive to like advance themselves at the expense of, of other people. And that's a harder thing to, um, to overcome, like getting, getting people who have power or privilege to voluntarily surrender that power or privilege is a very difficult thing to do. But I also think there's like, just from, even from a positive sum perspective, there's a loss to society as a whole when talent is not cultivated. And to the, I mean, I go back and forth on like how much I believe in, in sort of like innate talent, but to the extent that you do, um, there's no reason to think that uh, the next Einstein or Martin Luther King or whoever else you would want to choose as like, you know, one of the most prominent people or most influential people in, in modern history. There's no reason to think that that person is any more likely to be born in the suburbs of Chicago than they are to be born in, uh, you know, a, a high crime urban area in Baltimore or something like that. So if the people born in that latter area don't have access to the same like, I mean, there's some chance that we wasted an Einstein, basically, <laughs> like that this, this person just kind of ended up working a job that didn't really ever you know, take advantage of their skills or worse, you know, ended up dead or in jail or, or something along those lines. And that's a case where nobody 
benefited from that, I think. Like, I think that's just a, a deadweight loss to society. So I think trying to create a program that, I mean, this is not necessarily, now that the scope of the program is bigger than when I was working on it, where like maybe it really was having an impact on like the school system as a whole. When I was doing it, I was working with 40 students, something like that. So it wasn't something that's like making a meaningful difference to the like overall statistics of Boston's uh, graduation rate or something like that. It was, but it, you know, it was giving opportunities to specific students who wouldn't have had them otherwise. And it has been nice, like staying in touch with those students. Um, I have so like I have one now who's who's a public defender, and you know, so you know she's she's doing what I would argue is like very valuable work. Uh, I have other students who have got some of them are are you know doing other work with with urban debate leagues now. Some of them are entrepreneurs. Some of them are um, you know they they've ended up everywhere. But seeing. I think they're all doing better things than they probably would have done had they not been in, in debate. And I think that's like overall a, a net gain for society. I sense that you're very practical and, and Dell gets on me about that all the time. I'll say something like, eh, I, I did all right, but it, it wasn't the best. And you, you mentioned that like 44 children doesn't affect the statistics of like a nationwide study or something, but the massive impact you've had on just like a few of those children's lives uh, sounds sounds great, and I think it's incredible that you had the initiative to just go and start it to begin with. Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that it, if I had realized, I mean, it did end up working out well in the end. But like, if I don't, th- I don't think I was clear-eyed about how unlikely it was to work out when I was twenty-one or whatever I was when I was starting to do it. And it is something that like feels more intimidating in retrospect. Right? It's kind of hard to imagine like what was the mindset that I was in when I was doing it. But I mean, in terms of the practicality, that was what I was telling myself. Like, I knew it was not a favorite to still exist in 2022 and let alone be like thriving as it is in, in 2022. And so I wanted it to be something where, although I knew that was a possibility and I wanted to try to cultivate that possibility as well as I could to the point where it is now you know, affecting thousands of students, I wanted it to be something where it wouldn't feel like I'd wasted my time if that didn't happen. So I was like, well, you know, worst case scenario, I've helped these 40 kids. So even if it never turns into something that is uh, part of the school system as, as a whole, um, at least these these students, their lives are better. In the same way, like I had a, an adult who was just a volunteer. Maybe he got paid a little something, but I mean, I, I benefited tremendously from an adult who worked basically just with, with me and my debate partner. So it was like, he, he was really just working with two students. But given that, you know, now I'm, I'm sort of the ripple of his, his volunteering. So in, in a slightly less direct way, you know, he's also responsible for those, those thousands of students. So I, I try to think of it that way. as like, even if, if the immediate change that you're making is relatively small, that ripple effect can end up being a lot larger. I think we can uh, all be grateful to 21-year-olds that don't listen to us older people saying, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> I think we can all be grateful for that. Um, Andrew, this has been awesome. The we've talked about so much. I also know that you have the Nick cast in Thinking Poker Daily. Do you want to mention anything about those? Yeah, I guess I'll just say, I mean, I think this stuff has come up in, in passing, but we've you know we've talked a lot about the, the books, which are Play Optimal Poker and, and the Essential Poker Concepts series. Those are available if, if you want them for paperback. Um, Amazon is the only place that you can get paper. If you want an electronic version, you can either get it on Kindle through Amazon or you can get it directly from me uh, at nitcast.net, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.net. And uh, then you can get it, you can get a version of a work on Kindle. You can also get an EPUB and a um, PDF if you prefer those electronic formats. Um, there's the Thinking Poker podcast, which you mentioned, that's free. That's something we put out, I would say roughly every other week at this point, it's not on a real strict schedule. Um, and that I, I co-host with my friend Carlos, uh, who won a WSP bracelet last year. And we do interviews like this one. And we also usually have a strategy segment where we talk through a, a hand or a theory question or something like that. And uh, you can listen to that at thinkingpoker.net. Uh, and then we also have Thinking Poker Daily, which is a pure strategy podcast. And that's like aimed for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and that comes out every day of the week. And that's on Patreon. So that is something that you pay to subscribe to. And then you get access every day. I mean, you don't have to listen to it every day. You get a feed and you can listen to them whenever you want. But we put out an episode every day uh, where it's just us talking through strategy. And that's patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. I actually almost 
forgot to mention this, uh, the Urban Debate League, that is a uh, nonprofit, correct? Correct. Uh, every, and donations there are uh, tax deductible. That's bostondebate.org. Um, there's urban debate leagues in many major cities in the U.S. and maybe even in other countries as well. So if you'd rather support one in your local area, just Google like Urban Debate League in the name of your city and there's a decent chance you'll find one. We'll have uh, links to all this in our show notes. Andrew, thank you. This, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I will say as, as an author and a you know, podcast creator and whatever else, the, the best compliment is when other people you know, engage with your work seriously and, and find it helpful and worth discussing. So I appreciate you all taking the time. You have anything, Jordan? I had, a, I had a question. Does the NITCAST stand for anything? Or in the current age of awareness, now that that's a, you know, a derogatory term, is there any thought in, in changing the title or have we gone too far? Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's tongue in cheek. It was something, it, it, it kind of, is, initially it was a reference to like uh, just a specific strategy hand where, where we were kind of advocating a nitty approach. Uh, I think one of our early strategy hands, we were talking about folding a full house. And we just sort of joked about calling the show the, the nitcast and the kind of stuck. Um, I will say that like from a, a philosophical perspective, we don't necessarily advocate being nitty in poker, but um, I do think, and, and part of the point of the show is to emphasize that a lot of people who are making money at poker, who are professional poker players are not ballers. You know, it, it's not everybody is like Phil Hellmuth jet setting and, and playing golf with uh, Tiger Woods or whoever. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of like one of the main ways, and, and Carlos, who's now co-hosts the show with me, is, is the best possible example of this. Um, the way that people are making a living from poker is by keeping their expenses down. You know, not you don't have to make two hundred thousand dollars a year from from poker. In fact, it's fairly difficult to make two hundred thousand dollars a year from poker. Um, so, one thing that you can do, and that often is important, for, like especially if you're going to be traveling and trying to play live poker, uh, and you know, keeping your expenses down, not staying at expensive hotels, not taking expensive flights, not celebrating all your wins at the strip club. Those kinds of things are often what makes the difference in terms of whether someone makes it as a pro. It's not like a lot of people who fail at being professional poker players. It's not because they weren't good enough at cards. It's because they weren't good enough at money management, you know, or, or managing like the psychologically swings of uh, they get frustrated when they lose or they get cocky when they win and, and blow money in various ways. So you know, we do kind of advocate like, um, uh, I guess, a, a nitty lifestyle. <laughs> and I say Carlos is a great example because for a while he was living in his car um, in, in order to make playing well, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, I would encourage people to listen to it, one of our interviews, with Carlos, to hear him explain it himself. Um, it, it's not as bad as it sounds, <laughs> but he was, uh, yeah, just like he, he really wanted to be yeah, he lived in his car not because he was homeless, but because he was making a choice to keep his expenses down. And I, and I actually love that story. Our other co-host, Christine, uh, did that when she started out as a professional poker player. And I'm trying to make the transition to it. And I have a job and I, I travel during the week and I live out of my truck during the week because I got tired of wasting so much money on hotels. So, you know, so I, I think that I, I think that a lot of people relate to Carlos and they may not choose to live in their vehicle, which, uh, by the way, that's a distinct difference to being homeless. <laughs> you know, it, it's a choice, but it, a lot of people may not do that. But yeah, I, I agree. You have to keep those costs down, especially if you're starting out. Yeah. And I mean, another person who, who surprised me, it was one of our earlier guests on the show was um, Ari Engel, uh, who I, I didn't know a lot about him. But when when we started interviewing him or talking to him, I realized he's actually at least used to be. I mean, he's made so much money from poker now. Maybe he's he's uh, slacked on this a little bit, but he was really like obsessive to the point. Where, I mean, it, it felt like this was part of the enjoyment for him was like figuring out how to optimize uh, you know, credit card points and airline miles and, and all that kind of thing, um, which is quite interesting to talk to him about it. But I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, he's gone on to become one of the best in the game. And I mean, he was already extremely successful at the time that we talked to him. He's only gotten better since then. But uh, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that he's approaching all of his decision making with the same rigor that he's approaching poker decision making. I think for us, Jaga, as well, I might be wrong, but uh, I think he sold everything and kept like three shirts, a pair of pants and lived out of his suitcase for a while, which is a bit more philosophical in the sense of removing connections. But it is a pretty cheap way to travel the world. Yeah, he's definitely doing like an extreme nomad thing. All right. I think we've covered everything we're going to cover this week. This has been great. 
I can't even tell you. This has been just amazing. Oh, it was great talking to you guys. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast for students of the game by students of the game. When you're not stacking your chips, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Recommend the show to your favorite donkey, fish, or whale, and head over to tbstv.com support to show the crew some love. Until next week, stick to the plan, and may all your variants be positive.